This episode of Historically Thinking was made possible by a grant from the Greater Good Science Center at the University of California at Berkeley. To learn more, go to ggsc.berkeley.edu. Welcome to Historically Thinking, a podcast about history and how to think about history. For more on this episode, go to historicallythinking.org, where you can find links and readings related to today's podcast, comment on the conversation, and sign up for our newsletter. And consider becoming a member of the Historically Thinking Common Room, a community of Patreon supporters. Since this podcast began, we've made the claim that historical thinking gives thinkers a knack for recognizing nonsense, and that it cultivates not only intellectual curiosity and rigor, but also intellectual humility. But what exactly do we mean by intellectual humility? What is it? What's it for? Why should we want it? And how is it related to historical thinking? In the last decade, there's been an explosion of interest and research over the concept of intellectual humility. One of the leaders in the field has been Michael Patrick Lynch. He's the Board of Trustees Distinguished Professor of Philosophy at the University of Connecticut, where he is also Director of the Humanities Institute. Lynch began his professional career as an epistemologist, writing books with titles like The Nature of Truth and Truth as One and Many. But then in 2015, Lynch published what now seems an even more prophetic and insightful book than it did at the time, The Internet of Us, Knowing More and Understanding Less in the Age of Big Data. In it, he explored the philosophical implications of the rapid shift to a knowledge economy and the consequences of having cataracts of information flow from the devices that we carry around in our pockets. It seemed to me that discussing the landscape of information in which we now find ourselves was a necessary first step before we could talk about anything related to intellectual humility. But I began by asking him what an epistemologist was and what the importance of epistemology is to our era. So epistemology is a big word for something that actually a lot of us right now in the, the information economy that we're all living in, that we're saturated in, it's a big word for something we actually already understand. And in some sense, right now, everyone's an epistemologist because epistemology is the study of knowledge. And we live, as Silicon Valley constantly tells us, Albert, in a knowledge economy. So right now, most of us are pretty obsessed with questions of knowledge, like who knows, who doesn't, who do we trust, who do we don't, what are the mm -hmm. facts, what does it mean, who has those facts? Those are the sorts of questions that epistemologists ask. And uh, epistemology, which was something that in the Enlightenment period in Europe became, in a sense, what's sometimes called first philosophy, that is, became, people became really obsessed with it during the Enlightenment. And the reason for that was, in part, one might think, because during the 16th to 18th centuries, a long span, a span of time, a lot of Europeans and people around the world were finding their belief system sort of upset, upset by science, upset by new discoveries, upset by religious wars. Right now, we're also living in a time where information technology, disagreements, political disagreements, religious disagreements are causing a lot of people to wonder, like, how do we know what's really true? How do we, do we really take for granted what people tell us? How do we investigate what the facts are? So I think in this sense, we're back to treating epistemology as first philosophy. We're all epistemologists now. It's the water in which we swim, whether we like it or not. Exactly. Part of epistemology has always been, how do I know what to know? What's the knowing of knowing? And that, of course, is in, when you're in the age of big information, of big data and cataracts of information that becomes even more relevant. It does, because right now we carry a world of information, as we all know, around in our pockets. The primary way we know about the social world is via process that I call, I've called in my other books, Google knowing. That is the ability to access information almost instantaneously via the internet. Lynch first used the phrase Google knowing in his 2015 book, The Internet of Us. While writing it, he engaged in an interesting experiment that I asked him to describe. You can find suggestions for how to engage in the same experiment in the show notes. 
Well, so the exercise that I, I actually really did this. So yeah. when I was working on this book and thinking about this process of Google knowing, I was trying to figure out like, well, how's knowing now different from it used to be? So what I tried to do is I, I, I thought of four questions, questions that I actually didn't know the answer to, like real questions. And I thought, well, I'm going to try to figure out the answer to those questions without accessing the internet at all. And no cheating by, you know, talking to people who could then look it up on the internet, right? <laughs> I had to wow. actually figure it out, but without the internet. So those questions varied. They went range from, I, I sort of picked different kinds of questions. One question was, I think the capital of Bulgaria, I think that's what it was. It was just a simple sort of straightforward question like that. Another question was, who was the, what was the phone number or address? of my local congressional representative. And another one was a sort of how-to question, like a question about outboard motors. I, I yeah. had one, I wanted to get it working again, and I needed to figure out how to do that. All these, and, and the last question was, what's the best restaurant in Austin, Texas right now? Yeah. I was gonna be going yeah. to Austin. I wanted to know what a good restaurant was. Now that's a question that you would just, right now you would just take for granted. You could get an answer to, right? Lots of instantaneously. But if you can't use the internet, that's not even a question that makes any sense. I mean, before we had Google, it just wouldn't have made sense to say what it is right now. I mean, you could look up, go to the bookstore, get a book about that would be like a year or two out of date. It would have some reviews of restaurants that may or may not be open right now and may or may not be as good as work. Mm -hmm. the person who wrote the book. So you wouldn't even ask that question. You know, the, the other question, you know, in one of the questions, the question about the congressional representative. I went to my local library, the kid behind the desk, very remember this very vividly. I said, you know, I need to know this information, contact information. And they're like, sure, there's the computers. I said to the kid, I was like, oh no, you don't understand. I can't use the internet. And at which point they were like, right. <laughs> One of them, they actually did have like, and they wouldn't have them now but this was 2015, they, back in those days, the ancient days, they had, still had, they were on which I helped, I sort of cajoled them and they found a, a phone book that had one of those blue pages, the government pages, and I was able to get hold of a phone number where I was able to access that information. I think what was interesting, I mean, a way of summing up how this felt, even back then, and it would feel differently now, but back then even, it felt sort of like, Felt like I was a Civil War enactor or something mm. like that. Like I was dressing up in old clothes. Yes. And pretending that I was <laughs> living in the past. Every five years, we've had a different way of dealing with information and data and each other. Uh, it requires an exercise like yours to go do some historical reimagining. Yeah. And that's a good word for it. Historical reimagining. And those reimaginings are important because what it does is it can remind us of the changes that are happening so quickly, are so immersive for us that we don't even really see what's right before our face. You know, right now, the uproar over chat bot GPT-3 is another moment. And now what's distinctive about that is people are actually noticing the change and they're debating it. But I predict that in my role as internet philosopher, that <laughs> just a year from now, we're going to be largely taking that open AI and these similar platforms and their iterations that will exist at that time, probably five, largely for granted mm -hmm. in the ways that we take the other technology that is so good at immersing itself in our lives, even as we immerse ourselves in, shall we say, theirs. You're right. Information technology while expanding our ability to know is actually impeding our ability to know in other more complex ways, or put more simply, greater knowledge doesn't always bring greater understanding. This is offensive to people, but there are people on every side of every issue who will be joined together <laughs> and taking umbrage at that statement in this fragmented world. You, Michael Patrick Lynch, can bring about consensus. That I'm wrong. <laughs> yeah, I think, you know, what I'm trying to get at there is that there are, there are ways of knowing that, like Google knowing, that we all now take for granted. 
that are perfectly respectable ways of knowing. I'm not claiming that you can't know things. I Google knowing that. Of course you can. In fact, we do know. I just, we, in a certain extended sense, if we include my phone as sort of in and out part of my body of knowledge in an extended way, I know an indeterminately large number of things that I wouldn't have known just 10 years ago. But that doesn't mean I understand those things. Just like really clear that in going back to the case that I was talking about, if you're trying to rebuild an outboard engine, I mean, it's a simple example. YouTube videos are amazing. I mean, they're incredible. They give you knowledge. But here's the thing, for anybody who's trying to do anything following a YouTube video, which makes it look easy, you don't really understand what's going on in the video until you actually get your hands dirty. And that goes for lots of different things, not just mechanical things. It goes for your emotional life as well. Our ability to understand other people isn't just going to be summed up by the list of facts you can rattle off about. If you think that we can just reduce our understanding of someone or misunderstanding of them to a list of facts we know or don't know about them, then I think you're going to be very unhappy in your relationships with others. So understanding, as I, underst as I understand it, is a creative act, an act of trying to engage, as it were, with the whole and synthesizing the parts of those whole, those holes. One of the things that makes chat GPT so fascinating, I think, is that it's actually a step towards an AI that can synthesize and start to pull things together. And I think that's why in my having, you know, I brought this up, but I've been being asked about it a lot. And I think when people ask, is that a new thing? I'm like, yeah, we're, it's heading that way. It may be that, you know, my, the claim that you were saying in the book, you know, people took umbrage to, they wanted to say, no, there, there isn't anything that we can't do with the mm -hmm. internet. I was like, well, I don't know, understanding. Well, it may turn out that maybe we can't. That's a deeper question. That is still, the jury's out. I, I can't say for sure. You said the internet of things has become the internet of us. What do you mean by that? Well, I mean that right now, the internet has become more and more integrated into not just our bodies, but our social lives. So, you know, five years ago, six years ago, all the, the thing was, wow, we're going to connect our refrigerators to the internet. Right. Which seemed like a great idea at the time until I've... Until we started to realize, that, well, wait a second, that means that our, every, all of our, our, our objects around us are going to be trackable and we're, you know, there's going to be information that's gleaned off of these things, not to mention it's difficult to update the software in your refrigerator. So the internet of things is still, however, a thing. I mean, joking aside, we do live in a world that's highly integrated into the internet and it's just the fitbits we wear, right? It's everything. So that, but what I'm trying to get at is that integration is not just physical, it's social. And so we, we now live in an internet that is shaping us even as we shape it. And, you know, the book begins with an experiment meant to show you the importance of that one, which no longer is as science fictiony as it used to be. When I first started talking about this experiment, which I'll describe in a second, back in 2012, people thought I was really like, whoa, that's just bizarre. The experiment is imagine a society which had their smartphones miniaturized and hooked up directly to their neural net, to the brain, so they could access the internet at speed of thought. I called it neuromedia in the book. Elon Musk is now patenting the term Neuralink, and that's what it is. It's a chip embedded in the brain. There's a bunch of engineers working on it. At the time I was researching the book, I met people who were starting to work on these projects out in Silicon Valley. They're much farther along now, although they've also realized there are certain, there are issues. We're not that close to Neuralink, whatever last week says. But it isn't really science fiction anymore either. When people are investing hundreds of millions of dollars into it, it's not really science fiction. It's just a business opportunity. And that, that Neuralink really exemplifies both, you know, the physical sense in which 
the internet has become the internet of us, but also the social sense. Because the reason people are interested in that is because they want to become more closely integrated, more intimately connected to the digital world around us. Let's talk about Socrates for a while. Enough of Elon Musk. Right? Yeah, well, let's, let's, let's go to the sublime. Back in the 90s, I read a lot of Derrida because everyone else was doing it. And I have to admit, it's typical of a careerist-oriented, poorly educated but highly schooled graduate student, which is what I was, that I read Derrida before I read Plato. Derrida was my gateway drug to Plato. There's a very famous essay Derrida wrote on the Phaedrus. And Derrida plays around with the idea that the Greek for drug is also for poison, blah, blah, blah. But the Phaedrus, and I, I always think about this when we're talking about technology, because Plato is criticizing, Biosocrates is criticizing the introduction of writing. Mm -hmm. That's right. Basically, he's saying we're going from an oral society to a written society. But what I think people don't like about it often is the urge to reflect on what we do, which is of course the whole point of your book, The Internet of Us, is you say acceptance without reflection is dangerous. Phaedrus is an exercise of reflection by someone who is now in a writing culture, but has a great sense of tragic awareness and realizes that for the advantages that will come from this new technology of writing, much will be lost. Mm -hmm. um, it won't all be roses. It'll be some garbage along with the roses. But that is something that in the 21st century is very difficult for people to accept. I think it's um, always difficult. That's very profound. And I think it is true that that is, it is difficult for people to, to accept because, and it's always been probably difficult yeah, I think that's for right. us to accept that something that technologies that are giving us great benefit and are exciting can have their downsides to use a very, you know, writing and the internet, these are information technologies, you, you know, you, there's a lot, thousand different examples. One of my favorite is the automobile. Y'all mm -hmm. as Americans love our cars. We now come to realize, I think many of us, even people who love their cars, <laughs> that the automobile reshaped literally the geography of the country and the, and, and it's. It's economy and in some ways for better, it gave us more independence, but it also meant it had contributed to the decay of cities, of civic life. It encouraged more isolation from your neighbors because you could get to where you're going faster. You know, when cars came out, initially people were like, you know, well, yeah, they, those are nice, but they're really just, the only difference is, is they might go a little faster or maybe not even that or, than, than a horse. So it's, you know, what's really the difference going to be? It turns out differences of scale, you know, are differences of kind when the scale's big enough. And, you know, then as, you know, for a while, it would have been weird to object to the, I mean, everybody was like, this is great. What, what could possibly go wrong? Climate change, <laughs> right? Things profoundly wrong have happened. Obe or obesity. Right, exactly. Probably. So, you know. Technology always brings with it good things and bad things. And it's always prop, you know, the gadfly who sits around and says, well, well, wait a second. We might be losing something here, or we might be, even if we're not losing anything, there might be unforeseen consequences yeah. of our, I mean, even if we're only losing bad things yeah. or neutral things, which is arguably the case in writing, there's still we're unforeseen consequences. And it's partly the philosopher's job. Right, as Plato was reminding us, to ironically or otherwise remind our fellows of those consequences. Everything we do has consequences, good or bad. And, you know, part of what reflection is meant to do is to get us to sort of think through the consequences of our actions. Something, ironically enough, we often remind our teenagers. You make an extremely important and telling point, which I kind of resisted, but that part of Google knowing Part of the internet of us is that we are ultimately receptive to others, whether we want to be or not. Mm -hmm. Now, I love the Wendell Berry line, the only autonomous individual 
who's completely independent, beholden to nothing and no one, is by definition a corpse. Mm -hmm. So I believe that we're always receptive to others. Or we should be. Or we should be. Well, no, actually, we are. <laughs> and that much of the ideology of individualism, which again is a wonderful consensual subject shared by many people who disagree with each other deeply about everything else, much of it's false or misapprehension. So, you know, I don't feel that bad then in saying I should be receptive to others because I am. I'm supposed to be a, I'm supposed to be learning. I'm supposed to, I like to believe that I'm a scholar. Of course, I'm receptive to others. So what's, how are, first, how are we more receptive in the internet of us to others? And why is that bad? Well, it's not necessarily, it's, it's not necessarily bad. I mean, it depends as you just asked on what that means. I agree with you 100% as a, a epistemologist of a kind called a social epistemologist that we can't help but rely on others, not just in terms of our physical needs, but we can't help but rely on them for knowledge. De couldn't know what I know if there weren't other people around which I am receptive to or I am receiving knowledge from. And much of what I know depends on what other people know in ways that I don't even know. So <laughs> there, in, the, in the knowledge economy that we live, right, there's intellectual labor going on that is allowing us to have this conversation, for example, over the miracle of the internet. And so our ability to know what, he, what, what we're, we're saying to each other, that is, 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 is scaffolded, because structured, is, is, is supported by Lots of knowledge that goes into the making of the platform, which we're using for to record this conversation. And that's all fine. In fact, that's all good. That's, as you say, inevitable, whether we're living in this society or in ancient Greece. And I think philosophers have, when they, when philosophers like John Locke, as I say in the book, try to, you know, articulate that that's somehow wrong, that relying on others knowing is somehow inappropriate and that's not real knowledge, then we're right to sort of, you know, basically say, well, that's a pipe dream. I mean, you know, and to quote Wanda Barry. I think what some, what we don't want to do though, we don't want to be like Locke and think that the only real knowing is knowing you do for yourself. You just, what you can only know what you think through yourself. That we don't want to be like, because it's impossible. <laughs> but on the other hand, we also got to be aware that when we're engaged in things like Google knowing, that we're often taking in information in ways that we sort of tacitly trust. I mean, we do trust the results of Google without being aware that right now our digital ways of knowing are highly shared and built on our preferences. Mm -hmm. So, you know, when, when we access information on the internet, that information is is been personalized for us. That's how the algorithms work. In the old days, I used to have to explain this to people. I used to give talks where I would explain that your Google results actually were going to differ depending on your IP address and other things that you and other people like you have searched for in the past. And people would not believe me. And so in, for, in lecture crowds, I would actually do it. I'd be like, I'd get your computer out and we'd start Googling things. And people would be astonished to find that they wouldn't often find the, the, the same links when necessarily come to the top. Nowadays, we, you know, in social media times, we just take all that for granted. We understand <laughs> when we're on social media, the every bit of information from the items that come down our Facebook feed, to news sources that we consult, all are going to be structuring their information to some degree, some lesser than others, to fit our preferences and to fit our personal profile, not just the advertising the actual content we receive. That is a dependency on others, and that is a dependency not just on people, but on algorithms. And algorithms that are, are structured, as I've already said, to repeat myself, to fit our preferences. And getting, as it were, the knowledge that you want is great when the knowledge, I put in quotes, that you want is great. The information you want is great. When you're looking for a good restaurant or what book to, you know, what books you want to read next or what movies to watch tonight. That's awesome. It's not so great when you're searching for facts, because if you're only getting the facts in quotes that fit your preferences, that's a recipe for 
or, you know, not bursting your bubble, but expanding it. So we get on the internet to discover the world and we find there ourself. Exactly. I would say that they are all basically technical terms trying to get at the same real phenomenon. Sometimes when we have a phenomenon that we lack a sort of really great ordinary word for in our ordinary everyday language, people grasp for technical terms and they put different terms together. And that's what we're talking about here. I don't think the term intellectual humility, therefore, is, matters as much as just recognizing the phenomenon that it's attempting to label. And that phenomenon is a certain, what I would call attitude, psychological attitude that we can take towards other people and ideas in ourselves. And that attitude comes, has two aspects to it. It's a sort of complex attitude, not complex in the sense of complicated, but as having multiple parts. One part is outward looking and one part is inward looking. The inward looking part of the attitude is that when we're, when we're intellectually humble, we are recognizing that we don't know it all, right? The outward looking part, and this is crucial, is that we also recognize that other people can teach us something. So the person who's not intellectually humble, who has the opposite attitude towards people or ideas, that is, who's intellectually arrogant, is the person who, who thinks that nobody can teach them anything. Right? They have nothing to learn from other people because they already know them. Intellectual arrogant person could know a lot. So there are people that know a bunch of things. They're experts. Some experts are arrogant, some are not. I think that part of intellectual humility, as we're calling, is the willingness to be told. We've been talking about the dangers of receptivity, but part of intellectual humility is the willingness to be receptive. Exactly. The willingness to be open to what other people can bring to the table. Yeah. And so, you know, when, when people talk about intellectual humility, they're talking about that attitude that has that inward looking aspect, that recognizing that you don't know, and the outward looking aspect. And you have to have both, really, to be intellectually humble. Because if you just have the inward-looking aspect and you say to yourself, well, I don't know everything, some, you might be the sort of person that's like, well, I don't know everything, but luckily I'm a genius, so I'll figure it all out by myself. Like Locke thought. That's still arrogance, right? You, so you really need, as you said, that willingness to be told or to be receptive to others, even if, you know, you don't think, Everything that they're saying is right, or even sometimes anything they say is right. Being intellectually humble isn't to be so open-minded, as John Dewey once pointed out. It's not to be open-minded to the degree that your brain falls out. You need to actually think critically about what's being said. But the point is that you're thinking about it, and you're not confusing truth with ego. Fundamentally, what makes the person who's intellectually arrogant, arrogant is that it's not whether they know things or not. Intellectually arrogant person, as I'm saying, could be quite knowledgeable. What makes them arrogant is they're thinking that what they believe is true just because they believe it. That's a sort of confusion of their ego with the truth. That And that is the type of attitude you get into, I argue, in a bunch of places that is based on insecurity. The difference between a truly confident person and an arrogant one is that the arrogant person is insecure. They're complaining truth with ego because they're worried about their ego. A confident person doesn't have to worry about that. They know their stuff and they're comfortable in their own skin. It's hard to be confident, easy to be arrogant. What is the difference between humility as commonly understood and intellectual humility? I think when when we ordinary in ordinary life when we talk about humility we're off, often talking a humble person is somebody that does not put themselves forward as over others someone who raises it's a humble person is is somebody who has a sort of proper sense of their own self-worth they're not necessarily being not abasing themselves necessarily but they're also not you know 
spiking the football in the end zone all the time. So when we talk about humility, generally, I think we're talking about that, that kind of moral attitude. Intellectual humility is, I think, a name, a sort of a label for a certain type of psychological attitude that we have, not towards our own self-worth, but towards our beliefs. So it's, it's intellectual in only the sense that it has to do with our mind. So some, some people, sometimes myself, I sometimes call it epistemic humility, epistemic having to do with belief and knowledge. It's, it's, about, it's a particular attitude we take towards our beliefs and the beliefs of others. I think intellectual humility is, has two components. The first, like humility itself, is inner-directed. It's the idea that the intellectually humble person is, is someone who realizes that they don't know it all, that there are limits to what they know and what they can justifiably believe, that they can get it wrong. So it's a, a, in part intellectual humility. This first part of intellectual humility is about one's own belief system and having the sense that you don't know it all. The second part of intellectual humility, though, is just as important. And that has to do with how you regard the beliefs of other people and the views of other people. The second part of intellectual humility is that you're open to what other people will bring to the table. You're open to what other people can teach you so that you have you've realized that you you still have more to learn, not just from yourself and your own genius, right? but from other people. So an intellectually humble person has both of the, or both of those those components going on whenever they're in that attitude. And notice that I called it an attitude. I think of humility in general as maybe it's a trait that people have. Some people can be more or less humble. But intellectual humility is really this kind of attitude we can take towards our beliefs and those of others. And we can have it with regard to some subjects and lack it with regard to others, right? Who amongst us don't find ourselves getting arrogant about some things once in a while or towards certain people? I mean, that's the other thing. If you know, you can realize sometimes that that some people can be perfectly open-minded and willing to learn from others on some subjects or with from some people. But when it comes to other people, suddenly they're know-it-alls. And that, I think, teaches us a lot about this, what we're talking about when we talk about this attitude. And again, I think, you know, for listeners out there, whether you call it intellectual humility or something else, I think we can all recognize this sort of two-part attitude that we can have when things are going well with us with regard to how we answer and ask questions. We're, things are going well when we're answer, asking and answering questions when we're in this state of mind where we realize, I really want to learn, which means I don't, I, I don't know everything. And yeah, you might have something to teach me that I might have missed. So I've been reading the Advanced Proofs of Book by James Conroy on the Casablanca Conference of 1943. Reading you, reading other people in intellectual humility, and reading this book gives me a very fresh and different take on this event, which is basically the British and American chiefs of staff coming together to argue about what the next step of the war should be. And he lets everyone talk from their diaries and letters. And what's clear is that whenever someone disagrees with you, that person is an idiot. They're stupid and they have a limited strategic understanding. Mm-hmm. Not a lot of intellectual humility is being exercised there. But I realize how often people go to that. This is like the common phrase to hearing someone on the radio that you disagree with politically. It could be about diet, nutrition, and exercise. They're an idiot. We always go there. That seems to be significant. I think it is significant. And it's not surprising that Montaigne, Charles de Montaigne, once said that arrogance is the scourge of mankind. and you know, it is it is frequent that when we feel threatened, we whether we recognize it or not, we often find ourselves retreating into this attitude of they're stupid. I'm smart. If you disagree with me, you're just an idiot. Those sorts of phrases. And you don't even have to say I'm a genius. No, if, you don't if, have to if, say, if, if you listen to 
some of some particular talk podcast hosts and talk show hosts on certain stations, you'll find often that they'll go to great lengths to say how you know how how humble they are mm-hmm. and how much they're they're really open minded, but how these people are still just idiots and they're just you know they can't help but just point this out. That's a person. You know, we were talking about intellectual humility as an attitude. The opposite is this attitude that you're talking about, which mm-hmm. is arrogance. Right. And arrogance is not just the idea that you know it. And it doesn't have to actually do with your knowledge because some of the most knowledgeable people can be arrogant. Arrogance is the attitude that you fall into when you collapse your ego and truth. When you come to think that what you, at its limit, at its far limit, that what you think is true just because you think it. And it's off arrogance, unlike true confidence or competence, is typically based on some, as I said, some perceived threat, some insecurity, some felt insecurity. It's felt insecurity, whether, you know, and and typically, of course, the arrogant person is the last person to notice that they're arrogant. And it's not helpful, of course, generally, as we all know, to point out to somebody and say, oh, you're being arrogant. Typically, <laughs> if you think back, if we all think back to moments where we were being arrogant, you only realize that later on, right? You're like later on, a week later, you're like, oh, really? Why did I say that? You know, and you realize that you might, if you're honest with yourself, that you've slipped into that attitude because somebody was sort of threatening you, you felt like you needed to, and you overcompensated by, you know, for example, saying they're an idiot or whatever. And the reason for that, of course, is that people feel the reason this is so natural is that all human beings are don't want to be perceived as being mistaken. They're, you don't get socially rewarded at conferences over military strategy. <laughs> people aren't going to follow you if you're just going around saying, well, that's a good point. I don't know. Maybe that's OK. You want to come off as the person with the answers. Mm-hmm. And so you get socially rewarded for having this for both being seeming seeming to be confident. And also socially punished often if you do get things wrong. Mm-hmm. So you 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 it's easy to fall in this attitude of like just acting as if you do know it all. And of course, sometimes, as I said, arrogant people can be quite knowledgeable. But it's it's important to remember, and we all know this, that arrogance is different than real competence. It's not based on competence. Everybody and or confidence for that matter, because you know, we all want our surgeons, our our airline pilots, <laughs> and and so on to be confident. I want I want them to be really confident, but I don't want them to be arrogant because arrogance is what allows you to miss things because you're collapsing ego and truth, and that's when you make mistakes. Arrogance breeds mistake, so. That's a complicated thing about this area, which is that it's difficult to isolate when people are being truly arrogant and when they're actually just being appropriately confident based on their confidence. Or people with arrogance might often resort to the defense that I am voicing my deeply held convictions Right is... We'll get to some of the benefits of intellectual humility as you see it, and, and, and I certainly see it. And yet, we're in the period where we crave, some of us crave intellectual humility, and yet at the same time, everyone craves people to have deep and meaningful convictions about which they are unapologetic. The This is a tremendously naughty problem. You've devoted an entire essay to this. We're going to do, deal with this in 10 minutes. How do you deal with this problem, intellectual humility versus conviction? Well, there's no doubt about it that there is a tension between saying to ourselves, be intellectually humble, and at the same time, maintaining our convictions. And that's partly, Albert, because of what convictions are. I mean, Convictions aren't just straightforward beliefs. I can believe that two plus two equals four, which I do. (laughs) And that would be laughable to say that that's a conviction of mine. Convictions are at commitments. They're not just beliefs, but they're commitments. And they're commitments that we take on that reflect our self-identity. 
Our convictions reflect, in other words, by self-identity, I mean our aspirational self, the kind of person we want to be, even if we don't often live up to that vision of ourselves. So our convictions are those commitments and beliefs that reflect the, our self-identity, that reflect the kind of person we want to be. And that means, among other things, that, as I just said, we sometimes don't live up, we don't have our courage of our convictions, right? Because we don't have, we don't live up to the kind of person we want to be. But it also means that when people attack our convictions, these commitments that reflect our, our identity, it feels personal. And the reason it feels personal is because it is personal. <laughs> because, because our convictions reflect the kind of person we want to be, the kind of person we want others to see us as being, mm -hmm. including our loved ones. And so when somebody says your political or religious convictions are wrong or misguided. Or, or that, professional convictions. Right. Or intellectual convictions. You're, you're asking, you know, you're being asked to, to second guess yourself. And that's very difficult to do. So one of the tensions between intellectual humility and conviction is really this tension between having the proper attitude of towards learning and inquiry, which requires you to be open to others and being willing to admit that you might not have it right. And how do you do that when it comes to those commitments that actually reflect who you think you are? It seems as if that requires intellectual humility, requires you to second guess yourself. And that is the real tension. Because the, the questioning who I am is at some periods of our life impossible for us to do. Yeah. I think most of the time it's it's not impossible, but it's extremely difficult. You know, and I think your, your point about very different periods of life where it's easier in some sense for some people to do this is right. And other times where social conditions make it very difficult. Mm -hmm. So, for example, one of the things that college and university education tends to do for a lot of people around the world is provide them a space a somewhat, if to use an overused term, a safe space to actually look at themselves and their convictions, that is the ones they've been brought up on, and see whether those convictions, those attitudes, that self-identity is still the one that sort of makes sense given what they're reading and talking about. Because for many people, for many students, the first time you really get to re-examine your own upbringing and identity, suddenly in that dorm room where you're meeting people who have very different attitudes. It's funny that you say safe space because my inclination has always been to think of it as a trauma space. It could be a trauma space. I mean, Descartes begins the meditations by saying, I came to realize some years ago that everything that I had been brought up to believe was, was wrong or based on insufficient evidence. And I endeavored at some point in my life to have the time to sit down and reflect those beliefs and to rebuild my, my, my belief system from the ground up. Those are the opening lines of the meditations, some of the most famous bit in philosophy. What Descartes is talking about there is that he realized this early on, but because he was quite young when he went to university, and then he was in a series of wars, and then things sort of like got out of control. And so he didn't really feel like he had time until he was later in life. He kept looking like, when am I going to have the time, the space, right, that to, to do this? It becomes harder as you get older. When we talk, but there are times, we, you know, if you talked about trauma, I mean, what I meant by relative safe space is that it's an institution set up to protect the person, mm -hmm. like physically, when they're they're engaged in this sort of examination, as opposed to other things in life that can cause people to re question their convictions, like being forced out of their home by war or famine, mm -hmm. by going and experiencing combat and coming back home. Those are real traumas, I would say, and uh, not that. There can't be trauma that happens at college, of course. I'm not diminishing that. But what's interesting about these, the institution of education is that it's, it's in part an attempt. It's not devoted to getting us to change our convictions at all. It's often devoted to the opposite and certain types of education to reinforcing conviction. But it is a space in which you have an opportunity to do that. And that's important because it's also that's why education and institutions of education are so important in helping us become, if, if things go right, and they often don't, 
is to get us to be able to have this attitude of intellectual humility towards our beliefs. We begin to realize that, you know, maybe we didn't know it all as we thought we did. But, you know, this, this problem, the other part of the, 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 the equation of intellectual humility and, and conviction is that we got to realize as human beings, we do need some convictions. Those people who have none, we all see as, you know, I mean, it, it, as not particularly the sort of people we want to be. The convictionless person seems to drift. They seem, they seem at, at, seem at best a, yes, a congressman, <laughs> exactly. A politician is what I was going to say. Exactly right. And at worst, just, just a, a person, as I pointed out, adrift on a, on a raft at sea with no safe port. So we want to have convictions because we want to have a self-identity. We want to have a sense of who, who we are and who we want other people to see ourselves as. But nonetheless, despite that tension, I think that you can have both. I mean, it's not impossible to actually have an attitude of intellectual humility and have convictions. And here's one way to think about it. I think, I think we should all try to have a conviction, actually have it part of our self-identity, that that we strive to be intellectually humble as much as we can be and as much as appropriate given the situation. So actually having a conviction that open things like open-mindedness, similar to intellectual humility, are important is actually, I think, really vital for us if we're going to be democratic citizens. To be a democratic citizen is in part to be willing to engage in an act of, of cooperation and and collaboration with your fellow citizens in determining the answers to the questions of what we ought to do as a society. And in order to be willing to engage in that in, a, in good faith, I think you need to have this attitude. And you need to have it as, in a sense, as part of your aspirational self. You want to be the sort of person that has that attitude. I, so uh, convictions have to be able to be consistent with intellectual humility because it's important to have intellectual humility as one of your convictions. I think this ties neatly into a, an analogy that you use in your essay on conviction and humility about the inspector in a widget factory. Yeah. Let me quote you to yourself. Applied here, the thought is that the intellectually humble person with respect to her beliefs is much like the inspector at a factory who checks the widgets that come down the line, not because she has any particular doubts about any specific widget, but because of a general policy to check the widgets. She may be fully convinced prior to inspection that a given widget will be error-free. Can we develop that a little bit? I think, you know, our beliefs, the intellectually humble person is the person who doesn't take it for granted that the, the mechanisms, that is the, the, the machine that produces their beliefs, as opposed to widgets, right? So think of the analogy, right? You've got our brain, right? And it is sort of like a factory for producing opinions. <laughs> and you you might think that with regard to certain sorts of subjects, you know, that you know something a lot of, you know, you, you know a lot about, something that you know a lot about that you're very good at. You might be perfectly confident, right, that the factory, in this case the brain, is producing solid opinions about that thing you're an expert on. But nonetheless, if you are an expert, like the, the person, the inspector in the, in the factory, in the example, if you are an expert, actually, you're going to be the sort of person that's not, is not going to just assume that it always goes well. Why? Because you're an expert and you understand that sometimes your opinions go awry. Think about the person who's the pilot, similar example, a pilot running through a checklist. Now, if the pilot, suppose the pilot's been a pilot for, you know, 30 years. They still run through the checklist. Why? Because they know what they're doing. And they know that sometimes you can, even no matter how good you are, you can think that you, you know, you, you check the, the fuel gauge when you really were misremembering. You were remembering yesterday. Same thing with widgets. Same things with our beliefs. You could be an expert in something like a pilot. You can believe that be a terrific expert in mathematics. But you know that even though you're an expert on this topic in mathematics, you know enough. What makes you an expert is that you know that you might sometimes get it wrong. Mm -hmm. You know the limits. That's why experts are often the people who are, you know, when you're really confident about something, 
you're confident enough to try to engage in safety checks, like the pilot. Even though you're the person that probably needs those safety checks the least. <laughs> That's, isn't that ironic? But we all know this, that in the areas of true competence that we have, where we're actually justifiably confident about our knowledge, those are the areas where we're most willing to also acknowledge that sometimes things might go wrong. I'm going to call that Lynch's Law from now on because that's <laughs> it's very good. I think there is actually, I'm flattered with the name, there's also a similar set of observations by David Dunning. The Dunning-Kruger effect says that it's sort of the opposite of what I just said, that people who are the least informed about a topic are often the ones who feel the most confident about their views. And we all know that too. It's like, yeah. you know, we don't, it, this is all obvious from all of our lives, right? Uh, the know-it-alls who, you know, they really think the person who's telling the plumber all about how plumbing works, right? <laughs> <laughs> right. You know? So, I, I, you know, and the plumber's like, oh, oh really? And this insert anything, historian, mm -hmm. right, philosopher, scientist, and so forth. So I think that what, what we need to learn from that is that, as returning to the point that I made before, is that when you're like the inspector at the widget factory and the pilot, when you're actually justifiably competent and confident because of that, that's that you can also, that's the point at which intellectual humility can gain a ground. And we've got to remember that and try to apply it to our other aspects of our life. I love the, the visualization of this as the pilot doing the checklist, walking around the aircraft, examining the services pushing the rudder back and forth, pushing the ailerons back and forth, checking the fuel in the tanks, making sure there's no water in there, that sort of thing. For every pilot, that is a social practice. Right. Exactly. So you conclude your essay on conviction and humility by discussing certain social epistemic practices which can be understood as embodying intellectual humility as a key regulative norm. And even though I'm used to reading stuff like that, I did have to take a breath and and reread a little bit. So first of all, what's a social practice? How do we define that? Well, by a social practice, I mean an activity that is involves the participation of a number of people and that is governed by sort of general rules that help constitute the practice. So think of one sort of social practice, for example, might be the, the practice of as you pointed out, the, the, the social practice of forming a, following a checklist in certain sorts of professions. Another kind of social practice might be the practice of, in, also involved with belief formation, is the social practice that journalists engage in when they, they check their sources. They, they, they take an interview, they listen to what somebody says, that person reports a certain event, and then they go to see to talk to another person to see whether that information can be confirmed from another person's point of view and experience. Or another social practice that relates to how we form our beliefs are the sorts of social practices that detectives might engage in, or attorneys, or historians. The social practice of archival research and the rules that govern archival research, right, for historians are the sorts of things you have to learn in graduate school. You just don't find them out by yourself. You learn. There are rules about it. There's a ways in which archival research is properly done and ways in which it is not. And the idea that I'm trying to get across there is that intellectual humility is guide or a goal or, if, as I call it, a regulative ideal of these sorts of practices. That is, when you're engaging in proper archival research, you're not ideally exemplifying arrogance. You're not going to do it well. <laughs> if you go into the archive thinking, I already know what's in there, then you've already gone off in the wrong direction. Things are not looking good for your results. You won't see, you won't understand what you read. Exactly. And this is the break, the, the sort of epistemic shock that people then will have at certain points in their life when they finally read something they've been reading <laughs> four or five times. Yeah. So what I'm suggesting in that part of the article is that if we want, you know, let me put it bluntly. One of the things that I think comes out of the research on human beings, not just the, on intellectual humility, and something that, again, we don't really 
need a lot of fancy research to tell us as human beings, is that we human beings are prone to arrogance and are not very good at being in attitudes like intellectual humility because we human beings are filled with bias and prejudice and tend to jump to conclusions and rationalize and engage in all these sorts of habits of mind that are not very helpful for learning about the world. Well, that's because everyone else is stupid, Michael. Come on. Right, exactly. <laughs> right. So that so we can admit that, as Kant would have put it, we're all constructed out of crooked timber. But how do we compensate for that? Well, a lot of the social practices that we're, we were just talking about, these social epistemic practices, that is, social practices that are meant to help us improve our beliefs, those practices are actually designed in part, to compensate for the fact that we are constructed out of crooked timber. Those practices are regulated by this ideal of intellectual humility because, precisely because human beings as individuals are terrible at being intellectually humble. So if we, you know, the, the, so if we follow a, a rule like go through the checklist, that will help you figure out, oops, I missed that one. Right? Even if you're feeling supremely confident or arrogant, as long as there's a social practice, it can help you correct your mistakes. And actually, when you do find that, oh, that source doesn't replicate what the first source said, or I did miss that thing on the checklist, or holy moly, there is a conflict of interest here between these sort, and I better check out of making this judicial ruling. Those things help us realize that, oh, yeah, we do have limits. We do have biases. And, and we do need to be careful about, about assuming that we, know, that we know it all. Those practices help remind us of that and therefore help us cultivate intellectual humility if things go well. But at the very least, what they do is they help compensate for the crooked timber of our own arrogance. In one of the final paragraphs of his essay, Conviction and Humility, Michael Lynch considers the benefit of intellectual humility for civic life, a topic covered at great length in his book, Know-It-All Society. He considers how social practices, like the pilot doing a pre-flight check, are necessary for citizens in a democracy. He writes, The practices I see as most relevant for the present discussion are what have been called social epistemic. They are those crucial for the acquisition and distribution of knowledge and hence for epistemic trust. Without such trust, the ideals of democracy are difficult to meet. The social practices that seem most relevant include those embedded in historical and scientific inquiry, such as archival techniques, experimental replication, peer review, journalistic standards, using more than one source, dialogue techniques, having empathy, giving everyone a chance to speak, listening, and legal investigation, appealing to reliable evidential techniques, examining the motivation of witnesses. And that brings us back to the questions with which I began this episode. While Lynch separates historical, journalistic, and legal practices in the above quote, nearly all of these are in fact practices of historians, and necessarily so. Using more than one source is not just a technique for journalists, but historians. Dialogue techniques are likewise desirable for a historian to practice. Who wants to read a historian who doesn't have empathy and doesn't give everyone a chance to speak? And it's not wild to hypothesize that somewhere in the depths of early classical Greeks, the techniques of legal investigation, appealing to evidence, examining the motivations of witnesses, began at more or less the same time as Herodotus of Halicarnassus began to make his inquiries into why the Greeks and Persians went to war. So maybe when we believe that historical thinking is not just good for doing history, but for lots of other things besides, maybe we're on to something. For the rest of 2023, as I indicated at the beginning of the podcast, I'm going to be pursuing this line of inquiry. The next two episodes in this series will be with a social psychologist who has, as it were, observed intellectual humility in a lab, and with a historian who's thought a lot about the topic. Then we'll be doing something different, recording a series of 30-minute or so conversations with a variety of historians, many of them past guests, about their own biographies as historians, 
and the relation of intellectual humility to their work. Now, be warned, these historians have not been selected, and I have not tried to get them to provide a useful what-have-we-learned-today moment in each and every recording. These recordings are, in fact, more like oral histories, or perhaps field recordings for an account of historians' social practices. But if you like hearing people skilled at their craft talking about how they go about their craft, and I personally think that's one of the most fascinating things there is to listen to and to learn about, then these interviews will interest you. That's all for now. My thanks to Michael Lynch for his patience and good humor, and to Mary Volpe of the Humanities Institute of the University of Connecticut, who helped us arrange our schedules. I'm Al Zambone. Thanks for being part of Historically Thinking. Thank you.